0: Among Muslims, he is much respected, but little understood. Islam reveres Jesus as a great prophet, but not as God in the flesh. Muslims agree Jesus lived. They agree he was taken up into heaven. But they don't agree that he was crucified, dead, and buried. One Islamic scholar said this. We honor Jesus more than you Christians do. We refuse to believe that God would permit him to suffer death on the cross. Hindus have their own theories about Jesus. Some say he visited between the age of 12 and 30 and studied under their gurus. And then Buddhists, they maintain he was one of their own monks. There is no shortage of opinions when it comes to Jesus. Even among some who call themselves Christians, many of their theories really put Jesus on the same Plain as somebody like Snow White. Think of the uh, 20th century German theologian Rudolf Boltmann. Rudolf Boltmann wanted to demythologize Jesus. What that meant was he wanted to strip away all of the supernatural and reduce him to a Jesus that could actually be believed. Why did he feel that was so important? Well, he said, It's impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries And at the same time, to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. So for him, heaven and hell, angels and demons, miracles and resurrection, all these were discarded. They were exchanged for merely a good moral example. Well, Whether you're a Muslim scholar or a liberal Christian theologian, whether you're a an adherent of Jehovah's Witnesses or a Hindu spiritualist, Jesus is a figure of controversy. And I've not even yet mentioned the Da Vinci Code Jesus or the action hero Jesus. It all begins to beg the question, who is Jesus really? Well, what would you say? I mean, can we even know for sure anymore? Islam has its view, but formulated 600 years after the fact. Rudolf Boltmann and liberal Christianity has its view, formulated two thousand years after the fact. But what about those who actually knew him? What about people who were actually there? What did they say? That's what we're going to cons- consider this morning. We're turning to Luke chapter nine. Luke nine. We'll pick it up at verse eighteen. And if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, the black Bibles, there you can find this on page eight hundred sixty-seven. Page eight six seven. I would encourage you, open up your Bible and keep it on your lap so that you can follow along as we consider God's Word together this morning. Luke, chapter 9. We're going to consider two questions this morning. Number one, who is Jesus? And number two, what does it matter for you and me? So those are the two points of the sermon. First, who is Jesus? Secondly, what does it matter for you and me? Luke, chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the scribes and the chief priests, excuse me, the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Here in chapter 9, Peter's confession, we come to the continental divide of Luke. This is the real pivot point of the whole gospel. Everything that Jesus has been doing up until now has been leading to what we just read, this very point. All the teachings and the healings of chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and the miracles and everything's been leading to this. It's here that by God's grace the disciples begin to get it. Who is Jesus? Well, according to Peter, one who knew him, he's the Christ of God. Now, when we say Jesus Christ, we don't mean Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. Christ is the title, which means the anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach. Kings and priests in the Old Testament were anointed. That means symbolically the spirit was put on them, so oil was anointed on them to empower them for their tasks. And there were lots of messiahs in the Old Testament. There were priests and prophets, lots of Christs. But the prophets all looked forward to a greater anointed one, one with a capital A, kind of the ultimate messiah, the ultimate Christ. That's the one Peter was saying Jesus was. You may know there was a first century expectation among the Jewish people. They expected a military ruler. Somebody in the line of David who would come and clean house. He would deliver his people from the Roman Empire. And he would usher in this age of unparalleled peace and prosperity. We read of it in Psalm 2 and so many other places where God says of this ruler, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's what they expected of the Messiah. So speculation was swirling the word on the street was that Jesus was merely a prophet. Jesus said in verse 18, he said, who did the crowd say that I am? How did they answer? They said John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So it seems that few people were actually coming right out and saying he was the Messiah because had they done so, that could have destabilized society. It could have resulted in uh, Roman reprisal. Nevertheless, speculation was swirling. People were talking about this. Who is Jesus? And, you know, it all goes to show that popular opinions are poor guides for spiritual truth. Have you considered that? Just because there's a popular bookstore in a so-called Christian bookshop, lots of people are reading and talking about it, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a wise guide for you. There are books out there that are reckless and misleading. Think of the Da Vinci Code, for example, hugely popular years ago. But is it a true guide? No, just because it's popular doesn't mean that it's helpful. Don't look to BBC documentaries for your spiritual truth. I wonder about you. Where do you look? Is it possible, friend, is it possible that your understanding of the Christian life, that your understanding of Christian doctrine is really more shaped by your family than by the Bible? More informed by your upbringing, perhaps, than by Christian truth. Friends, we need to get our theology, we need to get it from the Bible. That's why it's so important to attend a church that's centered on expository preaching. That's why it's so important for you throughout the week to be a regular reader of the Scripture. Austin is awash in opinions about spiritual truth. So rest assured, Monday to Saturday, you're getting plenty of opinions. Just as you drive down the street, look at the billboards, listen to the radio. You need to be reprogrammed every week as you gather here as a church, but also as you read God's word. And I would also suggest this is why church elders are so important to the life of this church. The value of a pastor is here's one who has character qualities and one whose, whose doctrine is mature and sound. And who can guide you, not only in the regular teaching of the word here on Friday on, on Sunday morning, but in suggesting good books, in providing wise counsel, in caring for your souls, in pointing you in the right direction, in selecting songs that are rich in biblical truth that we've been singing this morning? I would urge you, if you want to grow spiritually, get to know your elders and get to know your Bible. Well, so much for other people's opinions. Jesus asked his disciples directly in verse 20, Who do you say that I am? You know, it's interesting. In the Gospels, who were the first people who knew the true identity of Jesus? They were all supernatural. Have you considered that? There were the angels announcing at Jesus' birth, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Or there was God the Father, whose testimony at the baptism of Jesus, This is my beloved Son. Even the demons knew who he was. What did they shout? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So all the early witnesses of Jesus were supernatural. But then as we continue reading through Luke, ordinary people start to get in on it. They start to catch uh, fleeting glimpses of the true identity of Jesus. Jesus forgave the sins of a disabled man. And what did the Pharisees exclaim? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or do you remember the time that he silenced the storm with a command and the disciples were there in there with him in the boat? And what did they say? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, now, Peter, he makes the great confession in verse 20. You're the Christ of God. Matthew tells us that this only came by divine revelation from heaven. Jesus was not merely a prophet. He was not so much the messenger as he was the message. He was the one to whom all the prophets had been pointing for millennia. Jesus had led them to this conclusion. Yes, I'm the king, but I'm not anything like the king you're expecting. Look at verse 21. Chapter 9, verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. A lot of people scratch their head over that verse. And Why wouldn't Jesus want the word to get out? I thought this would be a time to celebrate. Let's set up the political platform for the the messianic administration. No, it says Jesus strictly charged them. What's going on there? Well, throughout the Gospel of Luke, it seems that the surest way for Jesus to silence you is if you know who he is. You know, in chapter 4, he drove out many demons. But it says he would not let the demons speak. Why not? Because they knew. He was the Christ. That's chapter 4, 41. Or in chapter 5, verse 14, to the leper who had been cleansed, it says he charged him to tell no one. Or in chapter 8, remember he raised the girl from the dead? And what did he say to their family? He charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, this is because during the first century, the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would be a military conqueror, a political savior. And Jesus would indeed conquer, Not the way they expected. Look at verse 22. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So immediately upon Peter's confession, Jesus began correcting Peter's vision for who he was. Peter knew the Christ as conqueror. He didn't know the Christ as sufferer. For Peter, a suffering servant was a contradiction in terms. Suffering and Messiah didn't fit together, and yet Jesus was now going to bring these two together, and he began teaching to this end in verse 22 and following. Military power, that's what Peter expected. Suffering and dying, unthinkable. Look, at, look ahead at verse 43. Jesus reiterates it. I mean, this was such a revolutionary mind shift that he had to teach it again. Verse 43, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said this to his disciples. Let these words sink into your ears. In other words, pay careful attention to this. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. It surpassed their ability to understand so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. Well, both there and in verse 23, it says the Son of Man must suffer. I think when we read this, we tend to think Son of Man, just a humble designation that he's human. But actually, that's not what it means at all. Jesus is reaching back to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 where this person called a Son of Man comes on the clouds of glory in order to judge the universe. He is an exalted divine messenger. He's going to put everything right. What Jesus is saying is this divine messenger must suffer and die. Like we see in Isaiah 53 He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. He would indeed conquer, but He would do so through the cross. Friends, the death of Jesus on the cross was not an accident of history. It was all planned, it was all premeditated, it was all predicted. Just as the angels had announced beforehand at Jesus' birth, unto you is born in this day in in the city of David a Savior. God had sent a Savior from heaven. The eternal Son of God had penetrated into the human experience. He had taken on human flesh and lived a life just like you and me. He was beset by many difficulties. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, but without sin. He would suffer. He would be rejected. He would be killed, and then he would rise from the dead bodily on the third day. Many years later, Peter, after his betrayal of Jesus, after his repentance, years later, after Christ had been taken up into heaven, Peter would write this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now I wonder, is there anyone here this morning who is straying like a lost sheep? Could it possibly be said of you, regardless of whether you've been attending this church for decades or weeks, could it be said of you? Do you have personal experience of wandering away from God like a lost sheep? If so, then return to the shepherd of your soul. Friend, you can repent even this morning. You can turn from your sin and entrust yourself to Christ and to his care. You know, the truth is we're not all okay with God. All of us, by nature, are morally guilty. We come into this world as enemies of God. We may not perceive it. We may not feel subjectively a sense of enmity with God, but it's true. You see, sin is not merely a mistake. Sin is not just a misdemeanor. No, sin is rebellion against a holy God. And so all of us, by nature, are in a state of peril, of imminent danger. Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. Turn and be saved. You know, there's more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. Even this morning, you can repent. You can come back to Christ. But if you would follow a crucified Messiah, then you must suffer too. You too must count the cost. And that brings us then to the the second point of the sermon, which is this. What does all this mean for us? We see who he is. Okay, what does it mean for you and me? Look at verse 23. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, in those days, there were no cross tattoos. I know it's kind of edgy and popular to do now. Nobody wore crosses around their necks in those days. People didn't sing songs about the cross. Do you know why? Because the cross was a deterrent. The cross was a horrible thing. It wasn't even mentioned in polite company. Roman philosopher Cicero said, the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. In Jesus' day, crosses were not trendy. They weren't religious. They weren't inspiring. They were a threat. Quintilian said during the reign of Nero, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. I think it's likely that Jesus' disciples had seen people carrying their crosses. They knew that it was always a one-way trip. When a person went away carrying his cross, he never came back. Well, that's what Jesus likens to the Christian life. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, it was hardly a seeker-sensitive statement. You know, this isn't what you would say if you wanted to build a crowd. Taking up your cross is hardly the way to start a popular movement. So what then did Jesus mean exactly when he said, take up your cross? Well, this is a call to radical discipleship. It was a call to basically renounce your life and all of your valued ambitions and plans. Turn away from that, just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said eight years before he was hanged by the Nazis. Bonhoeffer, who was a faithful Christian pastor, said when Christ calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. Well, for one thing, this means you must deny yourself. You see that in verse 23, 24. Friends, this goes against every fiber of our being because by nature, we want to be the ones who call the shots. I know before I became a Christian, I was determined to see the advancement of my own political and professional ambitions. I was living for myself but we must now relinquish control, give up our agenda. John Stott explains it well. Stott says to deny ourselves is to behave toward ourselves as Peter did toward Jesus when he denied him three times. You remember Peter's denial of Jesus on three occasions. He disowned him, Stott says, repudiated him and turned his back on him. That's what we're called to do with our sin and with our own cherished ambition. Stott says self-denial is not denying to ourselves luxuries such as chocolate, cakes, cigarettes, or cocktails, although it may include this. It's actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. In other words, it's giving up control of your life. Becoming a Christian is a radical thing to do because what it is is putting somebody else in the driving seat of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. But Jesus goes even further than that. He doesn't stop at self-denial. He says you must deny yourself no matter what the cost. In other words, you must literally understand this. You must literally be willing to die for Jesus Christ. Lay down your life for him. That's why he said take up your cross. You know, the Greek historian Plutarch said every criminal condemned to death bears his cross on his back. Could that be said of you in your Christian discipleship? Have you renounced yourself? Have you come under the allegiance of someone new? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's the choice before every one of us today, including me. This work never ends, not until the day you get to heaven. So, my friends, if you've been following Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years at Park Hills Baptist, the same command goes forward to you. Take up your cross daily. Have you been living that way? It's not like we ever get to the summit of life and we can relax our grip and finally kick back. No, take up your cross daily. Many of our sins don't disappear. They keep coming back. It's not like we just deal a mortal blow to our sin and then we don't have to worry about that anymore. Maybe for you it's deep-seated anger issues or maybe there's the besetting sin of lust or maybe you deceive people because you want to appear a certain way. The eyes of others maybe for you it's the love of pleasure which is why Jesus is calling for a daily crucifixion life as a Christian is a daily battle and so I would just honestly ask you does this describe you are you on a search and destroy mission for your own sin your own willfulness perhaps your pride Your insistence on being first. Have you been making peace with your sin? I mean, whether you're uh, recently retired or whether you're in your first year of university, friend, are you making peace with your sin? Are you becoming more comfortable with it? Have you been tempted perhaps to go back there to the scene of the execution and play with your sin? You know what Paul said? He said, I've been crucified with Christ. Jesus said, take up your cross. But sometimes we get tempted to go back there and play with our sin. John Stott again said, it's as if having nailed our old nature to the the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of the execution. We begin to fondle it, to long for its release, even to try to take it down from the cross. Terrible image. We need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous, proud, or impure thought invades your mind, we must kick it out. We have declared war on it. We're not going to resume negotiations. We've crucified the flesh. We're never going to draw the nails out of the corpse. Friend, what I'm describing is not some extra option for super spiritual people. What I'm describing is what it means to follow Christ. This is the definition Levi gave up his tax booth. Peter gave up his fishing business. Stephen gave up his life. What have you given up? What are you clinging to that's competing with the supremacy of Christ in your life? Look at verse 24. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus, while this is a stern warning, he's loving us when he issues this warning. He wants to rescue us from putting our hopes in the passing things of this life. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Now, what does it mean to try to save your life? How do we do that? Well, we cling desperately Significance We grasp after the happiness that we're looking for in this world. And that means we're living ultimately for things like reputation or status or pleasure or security. What are you building your identity on? Well, I've got a good career. Somebody loves me. I'm well-liked and popular. Well, what happens when something goes wrong with your career? Or you get sick and can no longer work. Or what happens when your beloved lets you down and betrays you? Or when you're no longer in the in crowd? Well, then you fall apart. You lose the very life you're trying to save. And even if you do find someone who loves you forever, even if you do find a a job that's really truly fulfilling and you're thankful for that, you get a successful career that lasts for decades, still one day it's going to let you down. The most treasured relationship in this room will one day be separated, at least for a time. All of your plans, all of your desires and relationships on that day will come to a screeching halt. Do you really want to build your life on that? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? Not only that, those who live for themselves will suffer for eternity. So there's temporal suffering in this world if you set your life up on something that's bound to fail you. But then eternally there's suffering. Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus will return as the chief judge and executioner. He will come and set everything right will close out history. Every knee will bow before him. And on that day, if you were ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you. That means he will reject you at the final judgment. He'll condemn you to hell forever if that characterized your life. So let me ask you this. Do you love the praise of men more than the praise of God? Have you been ashamed of identifying yourself with Jesus? Perhaps in your workplace among family members where we live if muslims come to faith in christ they pay a steep price uh, at a minimum ostracism from their family disinheritance potentially threat to their own physical well-being we've seen people have to seek asylum as i mentioned you know some western missionaries are beginning to say to muslim background believers they can remain anonymous It's okay if they remain secret believers. It's called the insider movement. So they can still remain in the mosque. They can continue reciting the prayers, doing all the things that Muslims do, supposedly following Christ. Well, I want to suggest, on the authority of what Jesus is saying here, that's bad advice from Western missionaries to Muslim background believers. Terribly harmful. Such people should be warned, by all means, don't deny Christ, whatever the cost, even if you have to give up your life. All of us must be willing to count the cost. It's not just our Muslim background friends. It's you and me. Christian, are you living your life? Are you living your job? Are you upholding your reputation more than you're advancing the cause of Christ? Look at verse 27. Verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Peter had made his confession. Right. This is the continental divide in Luke's gospel. Here's the pivot point. Now Christ would head toward Jerusalem. The kingdom of God was drawing near, and some of the people would see it when it arrived in power. That means when Christ was raised from the dead, when he was taken up into heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out, some people would be present for all of it. Of course, not everyone was. Certainly not Judas. Let me sum up. Let me bring this to a close by suggesting following Jesus is not easy. That's what Jesus is saying. It's serious. It's costly. It's dangerous. But it's worth it. Look, Look at verse 24. Whoever loses his life for my sake will do what? We'll save it. Friends, it's worth everything to follow Jesus Christ. Family, career, credentials, kiss them all goodbye. Follow Jesus. Here's why. The reason why is in exchange for your life, you receive a superior treasure. You receive something greater than you ever could have possibly imagined. The pleasure and joy of knowing and serving Christ, which is what you always wanted anyway. It's what you were seeking for so desperately in that romantic relationship or in in, uh, the idolatry of your job or whatever it is you were struggling with. We want a sense of fulfillment. We want satisfaction. It only comes finally from knowing Christ. C.S. Lewis described it like this. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. I'll give you a new self instead. I'll give you myself. That's what Jesus is saying. Lose your life for me, and for the gospel, and you'll save it. Friends, that's the greatest thing. Once you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, all the sins that formerly entranced you will fade into insignificance. You know, I confess, sin might satisfy for a moment, but it leaves a bitter aftertaste. Jesus, on the other hand, satisfies forever and with increasing joy. He is a Christ, a king with total authority to ask of you anything he will, including lay down your life for him. He's a sovereign, but he's not just a king, is he? He's a king on a cross. He's one who loved us and gave himself for us. Hasn't he earned your trust? Hasn't Jesus Christ deserved your allegiance? Friend, if he gave himself so utterly for you and me, should not we give ourselves completely and totally for him? Adoniram Judson wanted to marry a young lady. Her name was Anne Hasseltine. He was eligible. She was willing. Just one problem. Judson was a missionary to Burma was in the 1800s. They didn't have nonstop air travel. Judson was one of those early missionaries to India and then in Burma. He was taking the good news of Jesus, but he also wanted to take a wife with him. So he was home on furlough, and so he wrote her father, John Hasseltine. This letter of marriage proposal. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from those heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Fathers, how would you like to receive a letter like that? Can you imagine being John Hasseltine? In getting that letter, what would he do? Well, he had reservations. He didn't know what to do, so he's, he just said, it's over to you, Anne. He let her make her own decision. She, of course, eagerly said yes. She left in 1812, and she never came back. Fourteen years later, she was buried under a tree by the Irrawaddy River. She had counted the cost. She had taken up her cross. She had followed Christ. And what about you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us something greater than our own paltry ambition, than fleeting success or temporary satisfaction. Lord, you have given us an abiding hope. You have given us a new identity in Christ. You've given us a reason to live. Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, we confess that too often our hearts wander and stray. We confess the allurements of Austin and Dubai and modern life are often appealing to us. We pray that by your grace would hold us fast Lord we ask that by your spirit and through your word you would correct our vision and reprogram our ambitions and plans that we might be obedient that we might deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Christ in whose name we pray Amen Would you please stand and let us seal this word in our hearts by responding and singing all I have is Christ. Let us stand and sing.